anyone who takes on the challenge of developing a deep mind for Christ will inevitably encounter and will eventually have to interact with some of the great Christian minds from the past. The influence of the writings of the past that are today considered Christian classics have been enormous and are, in my opinion, must-reads for anyone looking to become a well-rounded thinking believer. And so this leads us to the next benefit that comes from pursuing a life of the mind. In the process of deepening your thinking as a Christian, you'll become historically literate. In a previous episode, I explained that one of the great tragedies of American evangelicalism is that, by and large, we've lost touch with our own rich Christian history, and this to our great detriment. In the 1800s, the American evangelical church was under the spell of restorationism, which was a movement motivated by a desire to go back to the original purity of the early church. It was widely, though of course not universally believed, that the Christian church had become corrupted over the centuries and needed to be purged from the dross of historical accretions. Now, naturally, this led uh, to a general mood among believers that tended to foster a critical and unfavorable attitude toward the Christian past. The past history of the church was no longer seen as a source of continuity, wisdom, and guidance for the present church but rather as a sad record of corruption, confusion, and even compromise. One of the defining characteristics of much of the evangelical community at this time was that of anti-historicism. Anti-historicism is the view that there is no value to be gained by studying the past. Such a view is nothing less than tragic from my perspective, because not only does it cut the link to some of the greatest Christian minds, and in my opinion, the greatest minds full stop that the world has ever known, but it also unchains the present church from many doctrinal safeguards that the historical church put in place to guard itself from the constant threat of heresy. It's no coincidence that the 1800s became the century of the cults in America. Once the church turned away from her historical roots and the historical safeguards that had been put in place through creeds and dogmas and tradition, the floodwaters of heresy spilled in. The global church today has the American church to thank for the rise and spread of the largest and now global cults, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. Cults that were birthed and incubated in the anti-intellectual and anti-historical climate of the 19th century. Today, the American Protestant Evangelical Church is still experiencing an anti-historicist hangover. It's my opinion that the church is currently suffering from an acute myopia when it comes to our Christian past. We're under something like the spell of presentism. We are fixated on the present moment. Evangelical Protestants generally lack 
any sense of historical continuity with believers in the past. Most evangelical Christians know almost nothing about any of the great Christian thinkers of the past. Probably less than one in a hundred have actually read anything that they've written. And the problem is not just at the level of the laity. Many of our evangelical church leaders spend most of their time and attention on the latest church growth books or culturally repackaged Christian expositions and have little remaining time or interest in interacting with the great works from the past. And of course, if our leaders show little to no interest in the wisdom of the past, well, we can hardly expect the rank-and-file churchgoer to. So what has resulted is what I call a kind of tribalism of the now mentality among many evangelicals. There is general disinterest and sometimes even aversion for anything from the Christian past after the first century. We have little awareness of our Christian past, and we just don't believe that those who came before us have anything to teach us that is worth our effort. And this attitude in our churches is an expression of what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. Many of us instinctively believe that wisdom and knowledge of the truth necessarily and only increases with time. So why would we bother to consider um, some long dead Christian guy? Why would, we, why would we bother to consider what he wrote? Surely we know a lot more today than he did then when he was writing. And this is an expression of chronological snobbery. And this is an area where the Catholic Church far exceeds most Protestant churches in America. The Catholic Church preserves, cherishes, and propagates her history. Now, obviously, the Catholic Church has a vested interest in doing so, since they're committed to uh, historical magisteria, uh, magisterium, to papal lineage, um, to the veneration of the saints. But whatever their motivation, their commitment to the historical Christian heritage is exemplary. Now, of course, the degree of historical illiteracy and historical discontinuity among Protestants fluctuates from church to church, and especially from denomination to denomination. Many of the conservative wings of the mainline denominations, uh, denominations like Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, in general, these mainline denominations retain more of a connection to the Christian past than do, say, the Baptist denomination or non-denominational or independent churches. And I've personally found that churches and denominations that are committed to Reformed theology tend to have a better awareness and appreciation for the past, especially from the Reformation onward. However, even among Reformed churches, it seems to me um, there seems to be a gap in appreciation for anything that went on in that thousand years between Augustine and Luther. And it was what's really sad about the current state of historical illiteracy within evangelical Protestantism is that it's just so contrary to our heritage. The early reformers, especially Calvin and Luther, though they were confronted with the abject corruption and depravity of the Roman Catholic Church in their day, nevertheless retained great respect for the historical church, even the historical church that was Catholic, even though Calvin and Luther mercilessly railed against the abuse of the Catholic Church in their day, 
Both of them still recognized the Catholic Church as a legitimate expression, albeit a corrupted and sinful one, of Christ's Church. In fact, the Reformers never intended, nor did they desire, to completely break with the Catholic Church. Rather, they saw their task as calling the Church to reform, to reform itself doctrinally, and to purify itself morally. These guys were not anti-historical. They did not take a restorationist's attitude. They had enormous respect for and a strong sense of continuity with the historical Christian church. And I recently read through Calvin's Magnus Open, Opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I have it right here. And as you can see, I have marked it up extensively. This is an awesome book, by the way, a classic that I think every Christian at some point in their life should try to read through. But what especially struck me was the vast and intimate knowledge that Kelvin had of Christian history. Kelvin marshals Christian history in support of his cause against the Catholic Church of his day. He piles up the testimony of the Church Fathers, men like Augustine and John Chrysostom, as witnesses against the Catholic Church's turn away from its historical heritage. His goal was to demonstrate that the Church in his day had departed from its historical roots. So the Church of Calvin and Luther's day had become something unrecognizable from the perspective of the first century apostolic faith. The reformers' reaction was not to throw away all history from the first century onward. It was rather to carefully show how the collective testimony of Christian history itself was on their side. Okay, so let me give you four reasons why you ought to become familiar with your Christian past. So number one, interact with some of the most gifted minds the world has ever known. The Universal Christian Church has been blessed with intellectual giants in every era of her history. For example, in the era of the early church fathers, there were men like Irenaeus. In the era of the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers, there were men like Augustine. In the era of the medieval theologians, there was Thomas Aquinas. In the era of the Reformation, there was John Calvin. Right up to the modern day, the universal Christian church has never lacked brilliant expositors and able defenders. To ignore the thinking of great men like these is to rob yourself of an incredible source of wisdom. I think a lot of us fall prey today to what I talked about earlier, a kind of chronological snobbery that um, we assume that because someone lived a long time ago, they could not possibly have anything relevant or interesting to say to modern people. But nothing is further from the truth. In fact, the greatest minds I've ever interacted with in my own reading have been those from the past. Now, I read a lot of contemporary philosophy and theology, and I'm convinced that the uh, dead guys, guys like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, are the most intellectually gifted people who ever walked this earth. Now, I might be biased. I think that people were a lot more thoughtful and reflective back then than they are now. But my own thinking has been enormously influenced by the great minds of the Christian past. Indeed, the greatest influences on my own mind 
have been voices from the distant past. Number two, avoid common theological error and heresy. The intellectual history of the Christian church has been shaped in no small manner by the threat of heresy and false beliefs. The greatest weapon against the truth has always been false teaching. It's not surprising then that when the truth of Christ was declared by the apostles in the first century, heresy was not far behind. The epistles of the New Testament evidence the early rise of various false teachings that were spreading during the lifetime and ministry of the apostles. It's a shocking thought to think that heresy was spreading while the apostles were alive. Entire letters in the New Testament are dedicated to combating false teaching. For example, Paul wrote Galatians in part to counter the legalism that was spreading there. And John wrote his first epistle in part to push back against an early form of Gnosticism. So if heresy was already spreading in the church within the lifetime of the apostles, is it any wonder that it has been such a menace throughout the history of the church? And just as the apostles fought back against the tide of false teaching in their own day, intellectually gifted believers in every era have held the line of orthodoxy and protected the faith against innumerable heresies. And in the process, many heresies have been carefully defined and cataloged, and important theological uh, important theological truths have been clarified against them. Truths that strike right at the very core of the Christian faith, such as those related to the Trinity or to the Incarnation. And all of this excruciating and often costly theological and philosophical toil is the heritage, possession, and the treasure of the Christian church today, which is why it's so tragic to watch Christians fall prey to false teachings that have been soundly refuted by the church historic. When we so easily fall prey to false teaching that even today threatens the church, we dishonor both Christ as well as our brothers and sisters of the past who fought so hard to preserve the truth for us. And when it comes to heresies, there's really, there's really nothing new under the sun. Even the great Christian cults were prefigured historically and already refuted by the historical church. And sometimes I wonder, had the, Christ had the Christians duped by these heresies and cults, had they known their church history, I wonder if they would have uh, not been as so susceptible to deception. So here's the lesson. When we don't know our theological history, we dishonor those who fought so hard to preserve it. And we ourselves will also be in danger of repeating the very errors that they worked so hard and diligently to refute. Number three, broaden your Christian family. In the book of Hebrews, the author recounts a short history of faithful believers in the past who serve as what he calls a great cloud of witnesses for those to whom his letter was written. We too are surrounded by this very same cloud of witnesses, only today the size of this cloud has increased exponentially. Church history is the story of the faithfulness 
um, perseverance and endurance of Christ's followers. And as such, it's a rich source of encouragement for believers today. After all, those who have come before us are not dead historical figures of the past. They are living witnesses of the present. They've run their course, they've finished their race, and now they exist with Christ. So all these believers from the past make up what is today our present Christian family. So when we ignore the history of their faith, we miss out on the fruit that is still available from their lives and their ministries. And there is an abundance of fruit. Christian history, for example, is a source of humility for us as we are confronted with those who displayed their devotion to Christ in poverty, in dishonor, in persecution, and even in death. And Christian history can give us perspective on current struggles as we witness those who have likewise struggled and who, never, and who nevertheless kept the faith and fought for joy. And Christian history provides examples for us to emulate as we are exposed to countless legacies of faithfulness, commitment, and steadfastness to the very end. Number four, protect yourself against cultural assimilation. Very often people find Christian authors from the past difficult to read because the cultural context in which they wrote was so different than our own. They just don't seem to be speaking our language or discussing, discussing the issues that are of practical importance to us today. Yet this seeming cultural disconnect is actually a tremendous asset for us, since it forces us to mentally place ourselves outside of our culturally conditioned modes of thinking about the world. In a past episode, I talked about how many modern people tend to be intellectually passive. People today often let others do their thinking for them, whether it be the media or celebrities or artists or social media influencers and so on. The beliefs of many people in our culture are molded by the environment around them, rather than those beliefs being carefully constructed by rational reflection and deliberate consideration. And even those of us who take an active role in forming our own beliefs are constantly in danger of consciously or subconsciously absorbing the ideas, the attitudes, the values of the wider culture in which we live. Now, the only real way to protect yourself from this kind of cultural assimilation is by interacting with ideas that come from outside your own cultural context and cultural age. And without question, one of the best ways to defend your mind against the threat of passively absorbing the current cultural mentality is by reading authors who lived during a time and in a, in, and in a culture that's very different than your own. And of course, we do this every time we open the pages of Scripture. But we can also do this by reading Christian works from the past. So if you really want to be an active thinker who does not simply passively absorb the beliefs and values of your own culture, familiarize yourself with the great Christian classics. So in conclusion, by becoming historically literate, you'll gain the perspective needed to free yourself from the seductive spell of presentism and to escape the tribalism of the now.